Good morning. morning. My name's Andrew. It's great to see you at church this morning. Uh, I'm really excited about uh, doing 1 Samuel. For one, I just love narrative parts of the Bible, like uh, looking at the stories in the Bible. But I think this series in 1 Samuel has come along at just the right time for us. I didn't plan it this way, but I think it's come along at the right time for us as a church. Term 3... Uh, some call it the term of death. Term three is always hard. Uh, it's always hard. Um, I, I wrote this earlier on this week, but um, when the weather wasn't as good. But usually, term three, autumn, the weather's bad. Uh, it's kind of 50 shades of grey, um, except uh, this weekend, obviously, has been an exception just to show me up. Um, our kids keep getting sick. Our houses start to feel too small. The flatmates of the family are annoying. Uh, the relationships are fraying, the job just isn't as rewarding as it was before and the year just kind of drags on in term three uh, and it's still a long time till Christmas and the promise of some much needed vitamin D. But I also know that this, this sermon series has come along at a time when uh, there are quite a few, more than a few people in our church who are finding things particularly tough. I know that some of you are going through some of the hardest times of your life at the moment. You're not even sure if there is a way out of your current circumstances, whatever they may be. And so I think in a time like this, in a time when you're kind of in the valley of term three or you're in the valley of the circumstances of your life, I, I think in times like that, I'm reminded that I am not in control. I'm not in control. We're actually never in control. We like to think we're in control. But when the world gets a little bit wobbly around us, our lack of control is made all the more obvious. And, and when things uh, don't work out and we're feeling lost and lonely and isolated, it's an important time to remember that God is different to us. He's different to us. God doesn't lie awake at night wondering what tomorrow will bring. He doesn't uh, wonder how he's going to cope with uh, what is coming. He doesn't wonder when the hard times or the sickness or the isolation will be behind him. He doesn't do that because God is the one who is in control. Uh, And it's times like these where uh, knowing God and knowing the God who is in control can make all the difference. And so uh, the good news of the Bible is that you can know the one who is in control. Uh, Being a follower of Jesus won't mean you know the reason behind everything that's going on in your life, but being a follower of Jesus will do this. It means that you are known and you know the one who is in control. You know and are known by the God who loves you. By the God whose big plan it is to put all that is wrong in the world right again. And that is the big idea that flows all the way through 1 Samuel, which is why I'm so excited that we're looking at this part of the Bible, this term. You are known and you are loved by the God who is in control. By the God who is working all things through all history to bring about his good plans and his purposes. And that's something that we need to grasp during times like now. I hear these words from 1 Samuel chapter 2 as Hannah prays to the Lord. He sa- she says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. So with that in mind, uh, will you pray with me as we uh, start looking at 1 Samuel together? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many different uh, things that we are feeling and thinking, so many different places that we are coming from this morning as we gather to hear your word. Lord, we pray that this morning as we hear you speak through your word, that you might work in our hearts by your spirit so that these words in 1 Samuel are not just words on a page, that are not just ideas floating through the air, but we might hear these as your voice to us, that we might know and love and be in relationship with you because of what you have done for us through your great King Jesus. 
And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, now, in our house, uh, Saturday is sport day. Uh, everyone seems to have a sport they're going to. Uh, yesterday, Adele had hockey, and um, Adele, in the rush of kind of watching Olympics and getting out the door to get to hockey on time, forgot her shin pads. Uh, she, quick phone call, and I had the kids all in the car, uh, and we are taken off to deliver the shin pads just before the game started. And as we arrived at the hockey field just down the road in Newtown, I get a message from Adele saying, you know that we're playing in Potorua, don't you? Now, the moral of that story, I think that was my fault, not hers. The moral of that story is, uh, before we begin a journey, we need to know that we're heading in the right direction, don't we? Before you bail all the kids into the car, before you uh, to spend, commit yourself to spending an hour in the car on a sunny Saturday afternoon, you, you want to make sure you're heading in the right direction. And so as we dive into 1 Samuel, we need to orientate ourselves to make sure that we're heading in the right direction. We make sure we understand how how 1 Samuel fits in the big picture of God's plan for his world. Uh, You may or may not know this, but the Bible is one big story. 66 books, one big story from creation to new creation of God's love for his world. And it's a story of how God loved the world so much that when it was broken, he is going to make it right again. He's going to make things good again. And right back at the beginning of the story, it's not very clear what God's plan is. See, when Adam and Eve say no to God and and they reject his love and they're banished from his presence and they're cast out of the Garden of Eden into a dog-eat-dog sinful world, right there, there is a hint of what God's plan is. Uh, Beginning there, there's an obscure and vague promise as to where this story is going. Somehow one of the offspring of Eve will one day come along and make things right. And so as we turn the pages of this story, as we keep reading through the Bible, we're looking and we're longing and we're expecting to see this promise fulfilled, this plan to come to fruition. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, with Abraham, uh, things get a little bit more clear. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, we get a little bit more flesh on the bones. God promises that, he, that Abraham will be the father of a special people that will belong to God. They will live in a land chosen by God and that uh, somehow through these people, God would bless all the people of the earth. So we get a little bit more detail and as we turn the pages and we follow the story, we're looking and we're longing and we're expecting to see God's promises, his plan to come to fruition. And as we, won, as we get to 1 Samuel, uh, it's a key part of the Bible because as we get to 1 Samuel... Uh, God's plans get a whole lot clearer. God's plans to bless and to rescue a world, we see that it's going to involve a kingdom. And central to the plan is going to be a king. A great and glorious king, yet a humble and gentle king. And so in 1 Samuel, as we go through 1 Samuel, we see, uh, uh, we'll see Israel's kings, and, and they'll give us a fleeting glimpse of what God's great king will be like. Sometimes as we look at these kings, we get a picture, of a, a positive picture of what God's great king will be like. But often they're like a photo in negative. Often we look at these bad kings and we see what God's king will not be like. Uh, so today and each week in Samuel, we'll be looking at the story and we're going to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about God's king? And what does it tell us about God's kingdom? And how does this prepare us? To meet God's great kingdom and to belong, to meet God's great king and to belong to his kingdom. And time and time again, we're going to be asked the question, 
Who will be your king? Who will be your king? Will it be a king after God's own heart or will it be a king like the nations? Will you have God as your king or will you try and fit in with the world around us? Will you live for God's kingdom or will you seek a kingdom that's of this world? So that's where 1 Samuel is heading. So we're heading in the right direction. We're heading to Potterua, not Newtown. Um, and uh, let's have a look at the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. So make sure you've got a Bible there and you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, the, the, the story begins, the curtain raises, and there is a lone figure standing on the stage. And it's Hannah. And she's weeping in the house of the Lord. Now, I know that many of us in this room uh, know the experience of longing for children, whether it be because of singleness or infertility or circumstances that are outside of our control. We know that deep, raw grief that comes when, when that deep desire is unfulfilled. But notice how alone Hannah is here in her grief. It's not a husband and wife sharing this burden together. Have a look there in verse 2. Verse 2, he, he that is Elkanah, uh, Hannah's husband, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other called Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now, Hannah and, hus- Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, they don't share this grief together. No, her, her husband, Elkanah, keeps celebrating the arrival of many sons and daughters, but not with Hannah. He has another wife that is bringing him the joy of child after child as they kind of fill all the bedrooms of the house. Penina, Elkanah's other wife, to make things worse, she was graceless. She rubbed salt into that painful wound. Verse 6, verse six because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. We get this picture of Hannah all alone, isolated in her shattered dreams and her broken plans. And the story actually begins on the one day of the year where her grief is the sharpest. Now picture it. It's the annual family holiday, family trip to the house of the Lord. It's where they all, well, they all go to, to, to the tabernacle and give God thanks for all his blessings. And the family all line up so they can give an offering. And Elkanah hands out the portions and, and he gives a portion to Penina and her whole brood of children. And then Hannah all alone. And even the kindness of her double portion, it just underlines what she doesn't have, doesn't it? And so Hannah comes to the house of God in emptiness, isolated, alone, a heart filled with grief. In verse 10, it says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Now, what's God going to do here? Will God hear her? Will he answer her? Well, Hannah's tears are not the only thing that is wrong in Israel. See, what comes kind of chronologically before the book of 1 Samuel is Judges. And Judges ends on an ominous note. Here's what it says, the the final verse of Judges, the book of Judges 21, 25, it says this. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. At the end of Judges, uh, Israel has no leader. And it's not going well. It's, it's essentially anarchy. People do as they see fit. 
And into this void, we meet this other family here in chapter 1 and 2. The family of Eli the priest. Now the priest's job, it was their job to serve the people of God and to serve God in the tabernacle, to lead them, to lead the people in right worship of God. But as we meet Eli and his family, we see that that special place of worship had become corrupted. Now have a look at chapter 2, verse 12 with me. Eli's sons, that's Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests in the tabernacle, it says, verse 2, Eli's sons were scoundrels, and they had no regard for the Lord. That word scoundrels, I love that. <laughs> that's an underused word. I think we should use that more often. Um, but, uh, but because we don't use it very often, it can almost seem a bit cute, right? Um, uh, like just a, like a little ruffian kind of kid. But these guys, they were dishonest. They were unscrupulous. They had, they had gone rogue. What these mugs were doing was that as people came and, and, and came and brought their offering to the Lord, Hophni and Phinehas, they would go and cut off the best portion for themselves before it was offered to God. They were not only robbing their fellow Israelites of the offering, but in the very presence of God, they were cheating God out of what was rightfully his. And so chapter 2, verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, For they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But that's not all that's going on with Hophni and Phinehas, is it? You see, the job of the priest was to teach God's people all about his holiness and how to live as his holy people. They were there to to lead and lead by example. But what's going on? Chapter 2, verse 22. Verse 22. Now Eli, that's their father, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You see the priests of Israel here, they were leading God's people into wickedness, not into holiness. Israel's leaders, Israel's priests, they were corrupt and they were wicked and, that they, and even when they tried uh, to show some moral leadership, they totally missed the mark. I mean, what Hophni and Phinehas are doing at the gate of the tent of meeting is, is, is horrific. But what Eli, their, their father's doing, is just kind of grossly incompetent. Uh, Eli himself is failing to show the sort of leadership that God's people need. Uh, in chapter 1, Eli mistakes Hannah's grief for drunkenness. And he gives her an earful. He completely misunderstands the situation. He doesn't get it at all. And with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli seems oblivious to what is going on right under his very nose. Everyone else seems to be aware of the abuse and the wickedness that's taking place in the tabernacle. But Eli only finds out from other people when the rumor mill kicks in and word gets out. And Eli's response to his sons, well, it's, his words have the effect of a kind of slap on the wrist with a wet bus ticket, don't they? Like they, they do nothing. Now, Eli, he's a big man. He's a big man when it comes to beating up on lonely women, kicking out the drunk lady, making sure he's keeping up the standards in the tabernacle. But he can't even deal with his own sons when they defile the house of God. He doesn't seem to get what really matters. There's no king. Everyone's doing what they want. There are corrupt priests taking what they want. And there are incompetent leaders who are out of step with the work of God. Israel desperately needs godly leadership. Israel desperately needs godly leadership. Now, if this was the state of Israel's leadership, what do you think God is going to do? 
What do you think God is going to do? These are the people that he has rescued from slavery in Egypt. These are the people that he has shown undeserved kindness. These are the people that he's brought into his promised land. And after all of that, as though the leaders of his people have, have turned around and spat in his face. Israel needs godly leadership. Israel needs leadership that will lead God's people back to himself. And God is going to provide it. And he's going to do it through the most unlikely and most lowly of means. He's going to do it through the child, Samuel, the son that he gives to Hannah. Uh, We didn't read it, but uh, have a look uh, at the end of chapter 2 there. Samuel himself is not going to be the king, but in in verse 35, chapter 2, verse 35, this is what God says. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. The anointed one there is the king. They will minister before my king always. See, Samuel himself will not be the king, but he will be the king maker. He will minister before God's anointed one, that is his king. Samuel will serve God's promised king. As we think about it, it God's, uh, as we think about it here, we start to see a picture of what God's king will be like and what God's kingdom will be like. There are clues here in, in 1 Samuel uh, about uh, what they will be like, and they set a pattern for what will go forward all the way through to the New Testament. And they're here in Hannah's song. I, I don't think we can underestimate how significant, I, I, sorry, I don't think we can overestimate how significant Hannah's song is in establishing for us the pattern of how God will work in this world and how God's king will live and how he'll serve his people. See, it's all there in Hannah's song, what God's king and what his kingdom will be like. And when we look at it, 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 the kingdom that's there is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom of great reversals. People down low, they will be raised high. People up high will be brought low. And we see this in a form of, uh, in a kind of a series of pictures from verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. Uh, verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Verse 5, those who, f- those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. And then the next one, imagine Hannah singing this one through the tears of thankfulness. Verse 5, she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. And then at the end of the song, we, uh, Hannah's kind of done with metaphors by the end of the song and she says it straight out. She says, verse 9, he will guard the feet of his, of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. You see, we're getting these pictures of an upside-down kingdom, of a kingdom of great reversals. Those who exalt themselves, they'll be brought low. Those who humble themselves, those who are faithful to the Lord, well, they will be exalted by him. And in her song, Hannah is introducing the story of Israel's king, the pattern of God's kingdom, how it will work. And we're going to see this over the coming weeks. We're going to see that the scoundrels, Hophni and Phinehas, abusing their high place, abusing their place of privilege, well, they'll be brought crashing down. 
And we'll see that God will raise up Saul as a king. And when, when Saul abuses his position and asserts himself over God's people, well, God will bring him down. We'll see a towering giant come along and uh, a towering giant named Goliath come along and terrorize God's people. And he'll be toppled by a boy with a children's toy. A small kid, a nobody named David. And that small boy, God, will exalt him to the throne as the greatest of Israel's kings. And we'll see barren, weeping Hannah, pitied by her husband, ridiculed by Penina, rebuked by Eli. If ever there was a nobody, right? Uh, when people start mistaking you for a drunk, homeless bag lady, you know that your life has kind of got about as low as it possibly could get, right? But who would have thought that through her, God would choose her? That he would raise her up, that through her prayer for a child, through her faithful trust in God, that through that sets in motion a series of events that lead to the great line of kings, from whom will come the greatest king, the king of kings, Jesus himself. You see, Hannah, at her lowest point, she gets the privilege of singing the song that starts the whole show. And it's a song that, 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 that continues through the opening scenes of the New Testament as well. You see, as the curtain rises in Luke chapter 1, on centre stage there stands a woman. And the woman is singing the words of Hannah's song. You see in Luke chapter 1 when Mary uh, is visited by the angel and, and told that her son will be the, the long-promised king of God's kingdom, when Mary hears that news, she reaches for the words of Hannah's song. She says this, she sings this in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 52, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Do you hear there in Mary's song? It's, it, it, she's singing Hannah's tune, right? And so just as God brought the kingdom to Israel through overlooked, unimportant Hannah, so now God will bring his great king into a world through a nobody, through a servant girl from a, a small out-of-the-way village. And what Luke is doing here as he starts his gospel, he's, uh, as he records Hannah's song on Mary's lips, what he's doing is he's joining the dots for us in God's big story. And he's telling us that the great king that Hannah sung about, the great king the Old Testament was looking forward to, the great king and his upside-down kingdom has finally arrived. It has arrived in the birth of Jesus. And even right there, back in Hannah's song, we see that the great king of Jesus, he'll bring about the greatest of all reversals. The greatest of all reversals. Hannah sings in chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. In God's upside down kingdom, through God's great king, there will be the greatest of all reversals. The dead will be brought back to life. There will be new life for those who are found in God's kingdom. This king and his kingdom it will reverse the curse of death as God makes all things right in this corrupted world. And so if we want to be part of that kingdom, if we want to be part of God's kingdom where there is no 
down, where the lowly are lifted up, where we need to humble ourselves before God's great King. We need to come to Him low, in need, seeking mercy and forgiveness and grace that we don't deserve. And then He will lift us up. He will lift us up. And if we trust in this King, if we trust in God's King, Jesus, we can be part of that upside-down kingdom. We can be part of a kingdom where the guilty, like you and me, have been declared innocent. We can be part of a kingdom where God's enemies, people like you and me, have been made his friends. We can be part of a kingdom where those who were under eternal judgment, well, they've been made God's children and they find themselves seated with God at his own table. We could be welcomed into Jesus' upside-down kingdom. And so what's life like in this upside-down kingdom? Well, Jesus both tells us and he shows us. He tells us and he shows us. There's this moment in Mark's gospel where the disciples, they're arguing amongst themselves. Uh, They're arguing amongst themselves as to who will have positions of status and authority in Jesus' kingdom. They all want to be lifted up. And here's what Jesus says to them. Here's what life is like in his upside-down kingdom. Uh, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them to him. Uh, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who, regard the, who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first of all, first, so whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so what's life like in Jesus' upside-down kingdom? Well, Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. So life in Jesus' kingdom is not about exalting ourselves, but it's about humbling ourselves and serving. It's not about using positions of authority and power and privilege for our own good and for the good of those around us, but it's putting ourselves at the bottom of the pile, willing to serve those around us, knowing, waiting, longing that God is the one who will lift us up. And Jesus shows us what this really looks like, doesn't he? Jesus shows us. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve. So did, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What a king we have in Jesus, who the king who, who gave his life as a ransom for many. What a model we have to follow as we live in his upside down kingdom. Uh, And to live in this kingdom, we won't ever be like Hophni and Phinehas. We won't ever use our position of authority for our own advantage. We won't ever be like uh, Penina. We won't look down on those who who are finding life difficult or are struggling. We won't be like Eli. We won't overlook or downplay the sin or exploitation of God's people. Now, to live in this kingdom, we will be like the king, like Jesus, who has laid down his life for his people. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you so much for Jesus, our great King. Lord, we thank you that he has lifted us up from the sin and death that we live under and that he's brought us into your great kingdom. We thank you that he has done that for us by dying for us, by laying down his life as a ransom for ours. And Lord, we pray that we might live as Jesus has, that we might follow his example as the great king by laying down our lives for those around us, by humbling ourselves before you and before men so that you might lift us up. And Lord, we do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.